On today's episode, how long does it take to lose fitness? Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. been getting a lot of positive feedback from the last couple of episodes. Uh, we had Matt Fitzgerald and we had Stephanie talking about the the diets and answering all your questions as well, the Q&A episodes. Um, yeah, getting a ton of positive feedback, more than I usually do. So thanks to everyone who's um, said the kind words. And today, episode 234, can you believe it? So many. Um, even just going through the Run Smarter book and writing things out and recapping on past episodes because I'm going back through the archives and finding interesting interviews with um, key researchers, top you know runners, health professionals, and getting quotes that are being put into the book and just <laughs> taking a trip down memory lane and how long ago it was. And you know when a hundred episodes seemed like a lot, now we're at 234. It's, it's amazing. Speaking of the book, we are really kicking it up a notch um, <laughs> where, yeah, everything's moving into full swing now. I have the rough draft completed and we now have um, an editor who is also a podcast listener. Thanks, Gillian, for going through and um, editing a lot of the um, chapters. In the meantime, I am working on the illustrations of the book today. Later on today, I have a chat with someone um, talking about the cover design I had a chat with someone yesterday, talk about the formatting. It is all being put into motion. And so it's um, been pretty crazy on my end, but yeah, really happy with how everything's turned out. I'm a little bit worried that the book is going to be too big, like talking about the book sizes, how many pages it will be um, based on the images and all that sort of stuff. Um, Cause we need to factor in how expensive, how, like the price of this book as well. So a few things on my end to try and to sort out, because like I say, I write, I've got so much stuff to talk about and I just want this to be a complete run smarter book that just contains everything. Um, yeah. If it, <laughs> I might have to start culling out some, um, some things here and there, I'll have to format it and see how many pages it is and then how much that book costs to make, um, but leave that with me. I'll keep you updated as things as things develop because it's moving very quickly at the moment, which, yeah, I'm very excited about. And hopefully you are as well. I know people that I'm jumping on injury chats with and just my clients who listen to the podcast and just um, the Facebook group members that I chat to, they're all very excited about the book. So glad to hear it. How long does it take to lose fitness? Um, I have 
this has been an idea of um, an episode topic for a while. Um, and while preparing for the book, I did stumble across this old but interesting study that the title of the paper is Time Course of Loss of Adaptations After Stopping Prolonged Intense Endurance Training. And it's 1984. It's in the Journal of Applied Physiology and was an interesting one. So it's not the best study. So I will um, talk you through the study and then I'll, I'll just impart some of my thoughts afterwards. And why I think this is a really important topic is because a lot of people when they're injured or when they're going on holidays or when they're unwell and they have to take some time off running, they have this big fear of losing fitness, um, especially being on my side of things, dealing a lot with injured runners. The fear of losing fitness is sometimes a, a trait that doesn't serve you. Um, I just finished doing an episode for a patron exclusive episode on um, self-sabotaging behaviors or a self-sabotaging runner. <laughs> and this is one of them. I think if someone starts developing an injury, if maybe they're preparing for a race, say a marathon, and three quarters of the way through their training plan, when things really start ramping up, they get sore, their knee starts to become sore. And then they say, oh no, I don't want to lose all this fitness that I have built. I'm sure it's fine. Let me just continue. The injury gets worse, but you just don't want to take the time off because you're scared of losing all that fitness that took 12 weeks to, to uh, make up, 12 weeks to sort of build upon. And I get it. I get that it's a fear. I'm not saying it's irrational, but it's probably not serving you. And so I thought I'd want to definitely cover this as a particular episode and um, see what we can find and then, you know, insert some of my ideas at the end of this. So let's go through the paper. The paper, um, like I said, is, a, is an older one, not exactly complete, but uh, it went through, it followed seven endurance well-trained athletes, subjects, um, and did their fitness testing. Um, they had trained for 12 months straight, but um, just their characteristics prior to becoming inactive, which is what they made the subjects do. They were performing endurance training for an average of 10 years. So very well versed in their fitness endeavors. Um, and then they told them to stop exercising. And then they did the same fitness testing at 12, 21, 56 and 84 days. Um, just to see, you know, through those trends, um, how long does it take to lose fitness? And so, like I said, um, prior to the inactive um, phase, they were training for quite a while. On average, 10 years, uh, I think it was plus or minus three years. Um, four of the runners, uh, four were runners and one, three of them were track athletes, 1,500 to 10K and cross-country kind of distances. One was just um, moderately running um, 30 kilometers per week. Three subjects were using um, a cycle ergometer. So seven subjects, um, four runners, three cyclists, pretty, you would say, experienced um, with a big history of training. And they also, in this study, had seven controls. So they had seven people that sort of matched the seven subjects. And these seven controls just didn't alter their training whatsoever. And so 
the um, method that they went through on the last day of training. So like I said, they went through like a 12 month training block, most of them on average 12 month training block prior to being tested on the last day of their training. And then all the subsequent tests after that, they went through a series of exercise tests and they also did like muscle biopsies and stuff like that. Um, to which like that's, um, the physiology side of things just went over my head, but the, um, the, the days, like I say, day one after training, then day 12, day 21, 56, 84. Um, these are the tests that they did. So the first test they did was a 15 minute exercise at, uh, which would be like a run on a treadmill at 75% of their trained VO2 max. Um, and then they did a VO2 max test, a treadmill test to test their VO2 max. Um, at 17 hours after that test, they did, um, a cardiac, their, their cardiac output was measured in bouts of different exercise, um, intensities. So at 55%, 65%, 75% of their VO2 max, then, um, measured, calculated the cardiac output. And then two hours after, uh, yeah, two hours after that, they did a muscle biopsy to test for a whole bunch of things that, like I say, went over my head. But <laughs> um, so they measured VO2 max, cardiac output, the muscle biopsy, myoglobin, that sort of stuff. And just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Yeah, then they repeated all those tests, like I say, in those timeframes, um, several weeks, um, several week gaps, and the results they found, let's dive into those now. So um, when training was stopped, their VO2 max declined in all subjects, um, and it was about 7% below the trained levels after 12 days of inactivity. They didn't really specify what their inactivity was. I'll assume they just went through their daily life, um, just didn't train, just didn't didn't exercise, but they were still you know, doing their normal daily steps and that sort of stuff, which is what I would assume because they didn't specify it in the, in the paper. Um, so in 12 days, they lost their VO2 max by 7%. A further decline, did not occur during the 12 to 21 day period. And that was, um, so, you know, you're talking two between week two and week three, you could say, um, there wasn't much of a, or they said that, like the decline didn't occur. And they said the possible reason behind that was they actually, because of their fitness testing that they did. So they did fitness testing day one, day 12 and day 21. And so maybe that was enough to preserve what the, what, was their VO2 max. Um, but then again, during the days of 21 and 56, there was another decline. So the VO2 max um, declined significantly to level to a level 14% below their trained level. So they've kind of gone from, if we're going from day one, they've got a 7% decrease from day one to day 12, then kind of a plateau. Nothing really happened from day 12 to 21 and then started to decline again to 14% by day 50, between day 21 and 56. 
during that last sort of phase between 56 and 84, it declined by only, uh, they said 0.11, which they didn't have a percentage. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, they used a value instead, but it said that it wasn't significant. So between day 56 and 84, there wasn't a significant decline in VO2 max. Um, and they also mentioned here, which kind of makes sense that um, those who initially had the highest VO2 max levels had the greatest decline. So these are just averages that we're talking about. But yeah, those who are extremely fit, performing like at their highest, they had the, the biggest um, VO2 max. And so I guess more to lose. So their the VO2 max declined more so than those who had lower VO2 maxes to start with, which I think would be most of the people listening to this. Most of us are just recreational runners um, who aren't really performing at our max. Um, but yeah, it was, was interesting. Was was a good, interesting finding. Max heart rate. Um, most of the change to the max, the heart rate max occurred within the first 12 days, which I think is relevant for most of us. Uh, I know a lot of listeners and comments when it comes to Q and A's are focusing on like heart rate training and going off heart rate maxes. And if they go on holidays or if they're sick or injured and then come back into running, they're wondering why their heart rate times or their heart rate zones and stuff are a little bit skewed. Um, so most of the change to the heart rate max occurred within the first 12 days. The heart rate max was significantly increased um, through that. Now they had in the first 12 days, so it increased by 4%. And then just like almost every other time stamp, it increased by an average of 5%. So, um, you know, from day 1 to 12, it increased by 4%. Then up to 21 days, increased another 5%. Then up to the 56 days, increased by another 6% then up to the 84 days increased by another 5%. So give and take 5% for each of those um, each of those time frames of inactivity. The last part of this paper is the discussion, which kind of talks about the uh, their findings and compared to other particular articles or other um, papers on a, a very similar topic. Um, so some things that I thought I would mention is the paper included that there is controversy regarding the rate of decline in VO2 max following uh, inactivity. They talked about um, two particular studies. Um, no, it's one study and they mentioned the two authors. So Hendrickson and Reitman reported that there was no decline in VO2 max occurring during six weeks of detraining, while Cluson, which is another study, found a rapid decline in VO2 max during the first four weeks and a slow decline during the um, four weeks after that. In a study on trained athletes, Houston and colleagues, so an, again, a third paper, found a decrease, an average decrease of 4% in VO2 max in the first two weeks of detraining, um, which sort of fits what the present study found. So in the present study, the total decrease VO2 max during 12 weeks of detraining was 16% with a rapid um, rapid decline of 7% in the first two to three weeks and a further decline of 9% during the period of three to eight weeks. These results are similar to the Cluson, the Houston and another Fox study that they mentioned. Um, so it kind of I guess fits the, their findings, but then disagrees with the Henriksen and Reitman's 
study that found that there was no decrease in VO2 max in the first um, six weeks of training. So there's, there's some things out there. There's some studies that are kind of conflicting, have like different findings. Um, they did mention, which is an interesting point, that bed rest deconditioning has shown to dramatically reduce stroke volume and VO2 max, um, which is what I sort of think about when I'm looking at these studies and I see that each of them have different rates of or declines of VO2 max. Some show that there's not a lot. Some show that there's, there is a lot in different periods. Um, the two main factors that I think of is, okay, what was their initial VO2 max? Because if you're looking at really trained athletes, elite athletes, like we said before, the higher your VO2 max, the more you have to lose and the the greater the decline usually is. So if you tr- if you follow an elite group compared to recreational groups, um, you'll get two very different um, results. But then also, what is rest? Like what are they doing that uh, during that rest period or that detraining period? Because some might study or say to them, you know, um, you can still exercise, just don't run or just stop exercise altogether. You can walk, um, but then they do hiking (laughs) instead um, because that's still walking. Um, And I guess it's based on what their rest is would determine how rapidly that VO2 is lost. And so that's probably why um, those sort of questions arise and why there's such a discrepancy and controversy in between different studies. Uh, we also have, I guess, the type of exercise. When I, we're talking about runners here, but I didn't go into all of those individual um, studies to look at what type of athletes they are. Um, and then there's also the unanswered question, which I'm sure you would be wanting the, the answers to is how long does it take to build back like it might take you um, 10 to 12 weeks to build on your VO2 max when you're training for a, a marathon. But if you go on four weeks of inactivity and lose 7% of it, how long does it take to regain that 7%? Does it take another four weeks or does it take longer? Does it take less? Um, I couldn't find much research to um, find those answers, but... I do have some final thoughts here. I have a a fair few dot points which I want to take away. This is kind of my opinions on these sort of things. Um, Nonetheless, one. I don't know why I said one because they're dot points. I'm going to get halfway through it and not know what number I'm up to. But uh, this point, (laughs) Uh, you shouldn't keep running on an injury that isn't healing because of the fear of losing fitness. That just doesn't serve you. So we do know there's um, general pain rules, pain guidelines. So you can probably still run on an injury if it's acceptable boundaries of pain. Just briefly speaking, um, for most running related injuries, pain should be less than a four out of 10. So still mild levels of symptoms during the activity that doesn't increase or returns back to baseline really quickly. So if your baseline injury pain level is a two out of 10, then during the exercise, it it sparks up to maybe a three. It should settle down back to that two really quickly. We usually say less than 24 hours, but the sooner the better. Uh, The other thing that you need to consider is that the injury needs to be improving week by week. That is a given. 
if it's not improving week by week, what you're doing is ineffective. And if you continue what you're doing, the odds of this injury stemming into a six-week injury, into a three-month injury, and just persisting is quite high because you're not changing anything. Um, and we want to see that really consistent pattern, that really consistent trend of um, marked improvements week by week. So if that's not happening and you still want to continue training because of the fear of losing fitness, reevaluate things. Make sure you reevaluate the plan uh, and start seeing that injury notice, start documenting improvements. You will lose fitness within two weeks of rest, um, but it's really easy to preserve with strength training and cross training alternatives. This is where the, the magic of cross training and strength training and all those sort of things come into play because some runners only want to run and they, they get into a real sticky point when they're injured due to a running related injury and then their capacity for running uh, because they don't have any alternative. They just continue to run, that injury just gets worse it forces them to reduce their running, but they still want to run because like I say, it's their only mode of exercise. And so that injury persists and that injury dictates what volumes, intensities um, that they can run at. And yeah, they just get stuck because they don't have any other options. This is where cross training comes into it because you can take some time off running and settle down that running related injury if you can find another suitable cross-training alternative that doesn't stir things up but can still challenge your cardiovascular fitness, then it's very, very easy to preserve the VO2 max and your endurance and your capacity. Um, no, not, might not necessarily be specific to running. Might be. It will have some crossover, but it will still be enough to challenge that cardiovascular system because the more that you do, like if you were to find, um, if I was to take some time off running and do cycling. Cycling will still challenge my cardiovascular system and it's so easy to preserve my VO2 max when I'm just triggering it a couple of times a week doing something else that isn't running. Um, it's just so easy to preserve. So it's, it is kind of that saying, use it or lose it. So if you stop doing it, if you stop challenging your cardiovascular system, it will fade away. But if you continue to use it through other means and it's very, very easy to keep keep that in mind so some um i guess some cross training options is like cycling cycling is probably the best one if your injury doesn't get stirred up um, because you're still it's predominantly a leg-based exercise um, very challenging for the cardiovascular system if you do things like interval training um, if you do have injuries like say a proximal hamstring tendinopathy or knee pain or low back pain something like that Cycling might aggravate that that injury and you might need to find other alternatives. But cycling is a good one. Swimming, I know a lot of runners don't like swimming, but if you do, that's a bonus. Uh, rowing, like you can go to the gym, use the rower, um, or just use the treadmill just to increase the incline and just do some you know, low walking or do the, the step machine. Um, jump rope, you can do strength classes. There's so many things that you can do to challenge your cardiovascular system, but this will all depend. This will all be injury dependent, depending on the type of injury, depending on the severity. Um, 
it, it will depend on which option is best for you. And you can just use symptoms. Let symptoms be your guide if you um, don't have a health professional or just want to give a few things a try. But strength training as well, assigning the right type of exercises, assigning the right type of dosage, the weights, the sets, the reps, um, the range of movement that you go through, all of these things can be done with a health professional, the guidance of a health professional, um, but can still help like maybe not challenge the cardiovascular system, but challenge the musculoskeletal system. Because if you do have shin splints, it's best to try and preserve the strength of the calf, the shin, the ankle, the knee, the hip, um, while you're not running or having to spend dialing back the running or the running intensity. So these options can be very good for maintaining fitness, um, both cardiovascular and strength fitness. So be creative, be resourceful enough to come up with these options. Um, And then you could probably, if you do it properly, you could even build upon your fitness while you're managing an injury and having to dial back the running. Even if you had to stop running, if it's a severe injury and you had to stop running, um, because we know in most cases, uh, if you've listened to more episodes of the podcast, you know in most cases, if it's a, a low-grade injury, you could probably still run. You might just have to dial it back, dial back the intensity or the volume. But in most cases, you can probably still do some bouts of running. But let's really challenge you through other means. Build upon your fitness don't just like um, think, oh, I'm going to lose my fitness. Let's use it as an opportunity to still build upon your fitness with being resourceful enough, being creative enough and coming up with a few different alternatives outside of running. Then when the injury starts to improve, return, start dialing those running volumes back up, start dialing those intensities back up and, um, you know, be better because of it. And, you know, that maybe you've learned a few different tools and tricks or, different enjoyments with different strength exercises or cardiovascular exercises that you can um, use or utilize in the future if an injury does pop up. So the other thing is like most recreational runners, like most of the people listening to this podcast are not top performers. They don't have very high VO2 max levels. Therefore their decline will be smaller than, you know, what most of these studies have shown. It's probably not a massive um, worry that they're going, that you will lose fitness if you have to dial back your running or spend time off running or spend time with bed rest because, you know, you can return quite quickly to those sort of things. It's probably um, another one to finish on. Bed rest, like if you are unwell, if you've had to spend time in hospital uh, and you are bedridden, you will lose fitness very, very quickly. You'll lose strength. You'll lose fitness, um, cardiovascular fitness. It's that use it or lose it. In this case, the more you don't use it, the quicker you will lose it. And bed rest will very quickly diminish things. People are surprised if they spend three days bed rest and then they try and exercise. Yes, it is a bit of like overcoming whatever it was. If you are unwell, it is you trying to restore back. But a lot of people say in a cast, that's the that's probably a, a good example of complete rest. Someone's in a cast, um, say they had to cast their ankle and be on crutches for 10 days because they fractured their ankle. As soon as that cast comes off, their calf is really small, a lot smaller than the other side 
because you've spent 10 days completely not using it. But regularly doing little things to improve it um, helps preserve things a lot, a lot easier. So in that example, if someone um, fractured their ankle, but they were still able to weight bear, so instead of being in a cast and crutches or a wheelchair or something, they were just not running, not exercising, but walking. Maybe they walk around the house. Maybe they walk up the stairs. They're just using it a little bit. That will be well-preserved versus that um, atrophied smaller calf in 10 to 14 days time. So very, um, if you are bedridden, please, like if you do need it, <laughs> don't just try and run and try and um, exercise because of the fear of losing fitness. You, if you need bed rest, you take the bed rest, but you need to be very careful with your return back to exercise. Your fitness will regain quickly because it's only been 10 to 14 days. You will lose fitness, but it'll be, it's very easy to regain that fitness with well-structured training programs. So just keep that in mind. Um, but the main takeaway from this episode is uh, if you are injured, don't continue running on that injury just because of the fear of losing fitness. Find those strength and cardiovascular options for you. You'll regain that fitness. The injury severity will start to um, improve. That's when you start to dial things back up. If you are unsure of how to do that and you keep going through this boom-bust injury cycle, that's when a health professional is really key. And yeah, if you have periods of bed rest um, or like really low level exercise levels, just keep in mind that that return back needs to be gradual, but the fitness will regain quite quickly. I hope there were some key insights in today's episode. I'll keep you updated on the book. Um, fingers crossed to these next couple of weeks go smoothly. And as I sign off, remember, every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.